G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you. Good to be with you as always, but we must admit it's on a little bit of a sad note today that we meet. Uh, after the, the death of Aaron Tim Beck, one of the most prominent psychologists of the, the 20th century, he passed away the other day. And so, Dad, we thought in his honour, in many ways, we'd do a episode on CBT, which was the psychological therapy that he helped develop. Yes, Tim Beck, Aaron Beck was just an absolute giant in the field of psychology and I think the most influential psychologist over the last you know, 60 years. And so he developed cognitive therapy, which is one of the key approaches that evolved into cognitive behavioural therapy and how that's developed onward. And whenever people do a clinical master's course in Australia, for example, a, a, a clinical psychology training from the late 70s onwards, the core of the training was based on the work of Aaron Beck and cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy. And we'll talk about the evolution, the development of cognitive behavioural therapy, but there was nobody more influential in that field than Beck. And for him to have been working up until beyond his 100th birthday... He was still doing work, even in areas like with schizophrenia, in a range of areas. He didn't shirk from the more complex areas. But when we talk about what he contributed, I think it'll help understand more about how modern psychotherapy works. And I think when you break down his influence, as we'll try to do a little bit today, as you say, you really do understand just how much of an influential figure that he was in psychology. And, and so that's why I suppose in many ways, we were having a bit of a chat about it off air. And in some ways, today's podcast is going to be a little bit clinical psychology 101 in terms of a lot of this sort of stuff, as you say, is the, the foundations of, of clinical psychology these days. Yes, very much so. And so people trained all over the world, when people have been trained in cognitive behavioural therapy, they all will have been exposed in great detail to the kind of principles and some of the strategies that we talk about today. This is just familiar territory for everybody who's done that training. And all the later kind of therapies that have developed out of cognitive behavioural therapy, the so-called third wave therapies that we'll talk about later on, they've got Beck's work riddled all through it. And it is fascinating to, I think, go back through the history, as we will do today, partly, I think, because even just looking at how some of this stuff developed gives such a great insight into, I think, some of the mechanics of it. And I think as we do go through some of this today, certainly I found this during the week, that it helps to, well, it certainly helped me to understand CBT a lot better, even just learning how it did develop in the first place. Yes, and it's a very influential field also reflected in, for example, the Australian Better Access Scheme. So from about 15 years ago, the government started to provide funding that allowed for rebates for people to see psychologists. Now, one of the things that the government emphasised is it had to be a kind of evidence-based therapy or a therapy that had a therapy approach that the government could be confident in that, if you like, academics, different researchers, people who look at mental health and how we can, if you like, get the most efficient kind of change, the government was saying, we want some evidence that the therapy techniques that you use are likely to help, are likely to work. And one of the main areas supported in that was cognitive behavioural therapy. So there weren't many different types of therapies acknowledged as being 
legitimate for people to access that scheme, but cognitive behavioural therapy was recognised as one of the more scientifically validated therapies, if you like. And so that's another reason why it's so popular. Government funding has often emphasised that people need an evidence-based therapy like CBT. Absolutely. And look, we'll, we'll get into some of the mechanics of it today in terms of maybe why that evidence-based approach is so important, all this sort of stuff. But Dad, let's get into some of the history because I'm a, I'm a bit of a sucker for some of this sort of stuff. And and it's been very interesting this week to have a look back, as we've discussed a little bit on the podcast in previous episodes, that some of this stuff goes right back to the ancient Greeks and the ancient Roman, uh, particularly Stoic philosophers as well. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a bit of a sense of how some of those Stoic philosophers fit into the development of CBT? Okay, well, when we look at dealing with hardship or adversity then the philosophy of Stoicism really helped in many ways. It helped people develop resilience, know that going through tough times could help develop character, but also not to get too sucked into the idea of thinking the circumstances that we're in at the moment, that's going to overwhelm us, there's nothing much we can do about that, we're in a horrible situation, oh, I feel helpless. It's looking to develop a kind of resourcefulness where we can stand up even in very challenging situations. So a core example of Stoic philosophy was from Epictetus, who basically emphasised that man is disturbed not by things, but by his view of them. It's our outlook, it's our perspective, it's our take on situations, it's how we view a situation that counts. And so Beck followed up on that very literally by saying it's not the situations in our lives that cause distress, but rather our interpretations of these situations. So our interpretations, our view, our perspective, in other words, our thinking. It's our thoughts about the situations that we're in. It's our beliefs about them. It's our beliefs about ourselves, about things that happen. It's our beliefs about the future. That's what's going to influence our feelings, our reactions, our emotions, and often our behaviour even more than the objective situation itself. So that central notion of considering our view of things, especially when we're in challenging circumstances. And there's a couple of things that I find absolutely fascinating about that. The first is that a lot of this developed, and we'll get into this a little bit more as we go along, but a lot of this developed out of World War II. And part of the reason, it's my understanding anyway, is that obviously before World War II, there was psychological therapies, a lot of them developed by Freud, a lot of them to do with psychoanalysis and that sort of thing. And basically through psychoanalysis, there was a time commitment that people just didn't necessarily have in terms of, you know, it's after World War II, whole range of people who, what we now know to be PTSD, suffering from PTSD, and they didn't necessarily have the resources to be able to treat all of them through psychoanalysis. So I suppose some of it, it seems to me, developed out of the necessity to find a, a better way of doing things. Very much so, looking for efficient and practical therapies. Because if we go back, say, 100 years or even over 100 years, certainly hypnosis was quite influential early on. But the field of psychotherapy really took off with Freud, who developed psychoanalysis. But so much of the emphasis from Freud was on unconscious thoughts. So people lie on a couch, the therapist is out of view, so it's not overly influencing what people come up with. People might talk about their dreams, 
different thoughts going through their mind, their free associations. And the therapist would look to discern the areas of conflict for an individual in terms of what kind of things that they brought up. But if the person described a dream or even talked about an interaction they'd had with someone the previous day, the therapist is looking to infer, ah, but what does the dream symbolise? Or this situation that they're telling me about, what does that symbolise? What kind of notions can I have of where the person might feel stuck? Not taking what they're saying at face value, but looking underneath it all. Now, the problem for people like Beck, who was trained in psychoanalysis, and also Albert Ellis, who we'll talk about in terms of rational emotive therapy, he developed this field of rational emotive therapy the same time that Beck was developing cognitive therapy to have a more efficient form of therapy than psychoanalysis because both Beck and Ellis thought, wait a minute, people are coming up with all these subjective interpretations. They're thinking that when somebody is talking about this neighbour down the street, they're really talking about a parent and they're saying this about their parent or if they're talking about a situation where they were near a cliff, they'll be interpreting, well, what does a cliff mean for this person? And they might interpret it in so many different ways it seems quite subjective. And also it could take ages. For example, Freud would typically say to people, don't make a change in your life like change your job or your house or a key relationship while you're engaged in therapy. Yes, but a course of psychotherapy might take 10 years. <laughs> well, how can you go for 10 years and not make major kind of changes? That might sound like a slight exaggeration, but basically that was the advice for people not to make these changes. Therapy often took years. And so Beck, along with Ellis, and we'll talk about rational emotive therapy maybe in a future episode. But what Beck was thinking is, wait a minute, this is really inefficient. Why don't we look at the kind of thoughts that we can identify that people have? If it's their view of a situation, if it's their interpretation of a situation, let's try to elicit their thoughts about a situation by asking them, by asking them what's going through your mind right now. If the person's experiencing distress, asking what they believe about a situation. If they're struggling in a circumstance, what are your thoughts about that? What's your interpretation of that situation? And as Beck said, there's more to the surface than meets the eye. And as Beck said, well, a number of people could dismiss cognitive therapy early on as being a bit superficial. You're meant to look at these underlying interpretations of what people's unconscious views of situations might be. So yes, CBT is so superficial, but Beck was saying, wait a minute, not just superficial, there's more to the surface than meets the eye. Let's identify people's thoughts, bring them up to the surface. If someone thinks, I always screw up, or I'm no good, or that's my fault, or this will turn out badly, then Beck was trying to help people bring up these troublesome kind of thoughts or thoughts that might give them some distress and get them to take distance from those thoughts and look at them. And so that was a key shift with Beck. He, he said that you could be more practical and efficient by identifying thoughts that were closer to the surface than maybe Freud would have asserted. And if we can work with that, if we can work with our beliefs about a situation or how we view a relationship or how we interpret a comment from a friend or how we sum up how we've handled a work situation, if we look at our more direct thoughts about that, bring them up to the surface, that's how it can help us have a more balanced kind of viewpoint. Well, it is so interesting to hear you go through all that and 
also so interesting, obviously, like Sigmund Freud is such a pinnacle figure in psychology in so many ways. But to hear you describe that almost, I suppose, stereotype model of psychotherapy until I think I was a young kid and actually thought that's what you did, Dad. You sort of said, ah, come in, sit down on the couch and full on Woody Allen style. You just have someone almost spurt in a stream of consciousness and have to make sense of that. But I suppose what, what interests me about that is that idea of, you know, 2,000 years ago, Epictetus, thing, uh, man is not disturbed by things but our view of them. It almost seems inherent within Freud's approach that, for example, if you've had something within your childhood, there's no hope of you getting over that. You know, it's a 10-year course of therapy that you may have to go through. You're not in a position to have the capacity to make grand-scale changes in your life with any sense of control over that. It just seems to me so interesting that there seemed to be a, a, a movement away from that kind of thinking for almost 2,000 years. And then through Beck and, and as you say, Alice, it was only then that we seemed to go back towards it. As we say, after World War II, when it was almost like it was necessary for us to do that. Yes, well, you mentioned there, say, an emphasis on childhood with Freud. And certainly Freud would say that so much of our life experience or personality functioning is shaped by the first six years of life. Now, there's likely quite some truth in that. These days we talk about our experience of attachment in our families. We talk about early life experience. We talk about modelling, say, parental personality traits. There'd be family values and culture that would be relevant. But So no doubt early childhood is important, but it also could be overdone. And what would come up at times in cognitive behavioural therapy, I'll just say with trauma reactions, if someone's had a severe car accident six months ago, then so much is going to relate to the accident itself and subsequent things. And yes, how the person responds to that accident and maybe their helplessness around it, other reactions that they have can certainly be influenced by their experiences in early years of life and how safe they felt growing up in a family environment, how much they feel they can trust other people or draw on their support or if you like, think that the world is a place that can provide for them rather than being a hostile kind of place. Early childhood is relevant, but at times it was overdone in terms of psychoanalysis. And people could go to great leaps of interpretation to try and get a sense of what was influencing someone's reactions now. Whereas if we asked them why they interpreted this situation that happened in their workplace yesterday in a particular way, it might be more on the surface what's influencing them. Oh, I think the person was having a go at me because they said it like this kind of thing. Well, how do you know the person was having a go at you? What's the evidence for that kind of thing? Have you checked it with them or others who were there at the time? There are different ways that we can more pragmatically, if you like, maybe more efficiently even check out some of our perspectives, our viewpoints. So this is not to say that there are never more complicated, deeper interpretations of things. And I think that it's not as though we're always conscious of what our thoughts might be. And Beck would say that as well. Like a lot of the thoughts are automatic, so somewhat under the surface. It might take a little bit of digging. But sometimes there would be a more pragmatic explanation for things or even identifying the kinds of negative thoughts we typically have. If we get used to identifying those and picking up on the fact that, oh, I tend to discount the positive things that happen. If something goes bad, I do tend to catastrophize about that. 
we'll talk about some of these thinking errors that people can make. And if we can start to pick up some of the patterns in our thinking of where we tend to get a little bit caught up, that might be a lot more efficient than trying to dig deep each time, oh, what's the symbolism of this kind of thought I'm having? Well, there was a fascinating pickup, I think, from Beck as well. And one of the things that really interests me about Beck was just hearing the way that, you know, it seemed that he had to had a lot to do with depressed patients, for example. And he was talking to these people in this state and realised that they were engaging in, as you said, like these patterns of negative self-talk. And so it was almost like in recognising these patterns that came through, he was able to kind of go, hold on, is it, you know, is it, for example, chicken or egg here in terms of, yeah, there may be something that happened in your childhood that developed a pattern in a certain way of thinking, but at the same time, if, you know, many years down the track, you can find a way to disrupt that negative pattern of thinking, then you can still feel better. And it seems to me that that's, that's was in many ways the real, I suppose, the important shift that Beck picked up on, that there was a connection between those thoughts. It wasn't as if they just came after maybe a bad experience in childhood and then you were, you know, destined to forever go through them. There was some way that you could almost reverse engineer things to make them a little bit more positive and everything else would kind of flow afterwards. Yes, and I suppose in a way what Beck was looking at that way was also habits, habits of thinking, because how cognitive therapy developed is it followed on from behaviour therapy. So there was Freud in psychoanalysis, and partly as a counter to Freud's work on psychoanalysis, then there was a lot of research done in behaviourism, where people looked at habits. They looked at things like positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. They looked at things like operant conditioning, like how did someone develop a phobia? For example, an infant might be exposed to a rat in a certain situation. They did experiments with this and suddenly there's a loud noise, a big clap like Albert and the white rat. And each time exposed to the rat, there's this loud clap. And what you find is later on, when Albert's exposed just to the rat itself, showing this distress, which is associated with the disruptive kind of sound that happened at the time as well. So there's this notion that phobias or certain reactions can be learnt through experiences, through, say, negative consequences that have become paired with them, but also looking at habits, how they develop with operant conditioning. And so... That early phase of psychology and behaviour therapy, behavioural psychology, was emphasising what's objective. In reaction to Freud's notion of you interpret these things under the surface that aren't necessarily directly observable, behaviour therapy was saying, now wait a minute, science developed, like physics and chemistry developed by looking at what's observable and what we can measure. Psychology should also look at what we can measure, that means behaviour. But part of the problem is you couldn't explain everything by behaviour because it seemed that also thoughts were important. And to highlight this shift, in the early days of behaviour therapy or behaviourism, the view was we should ignore people's thoughts altogether because it's just like an epiphenomenon. What passes through your mind, it's hard to measure, it doesn't really mean much. What really counts is your behaviour. Like if we measure the velocity of a moving object, for example, you can measure that. But let's not sort of look at things that you can't measure like thoughts. We should be able to understand people's behaviour in terms of habits by looking at a human being as like a black box. Don't try and interpret what's inside the black box. Look at what happens beforehand, like a setting that people are in, and then look at how they act in that setting. We can measure that. That's observable. 
So in order to understand people's behaviour, all we need to look at is inputs and outputs. Now, what are people's experiences? What's happened to them? How do they act afterwards? If people are in this environment, how do they tend to act? We can explain all of human behaviour like that, forget thoughts. But what led to a shift in this black box theory is it was learned from experiments that sometimes you had to allow for people's internal thoughts or motivations. For example, you said to people, we're going to give you a test. And what we're going to do is each time you get the right answer on this test, we're going to put a puff of air in your eye, which is normally aversive and uncomfortable. So in terms of habits, if you do something and you get this little punishing effect afterwards, this unpleasant thing happens, you should do it less. So anyway, the person's doing the test, they get the right answer. Little puff of air in their eye. Lo and behold, what happens? They actually keep on getting the right answer. Even though it's uncomfortable, you'd think it'd be a kind of aversive therapy kind of technique, so they get the answer right less. Their motivation to get the right answer was more important than avoiding the painful consequence. Therefore, we had to allow for, ah, so people's motivations are important, not just whether they experience positive or negative experiences, so to speak. So in other words, we have to look at the person's interpretation or the view of a situation, whether they see something as good or bad or worthwhile or reinforcing, so to speak. So that was just one of many examples where we had to look inside the black box, had to start to look at people's thoughts, interpretations, values even if you like, but certainly what's going on in people's minds to help account for their behaviour. And then because Beck was a scientifically oriented person, one of the key things about behaviour therapy and then cognitive behavioural therapy is saying, all right, well now we need to allow for cognitions or thoughts. They make a difference to people's behaviour. Now we need to at least test that out or do research on them. And so Beck would think, okay, with depression, a lot of it is people have negative thoughts and that's going to impact on them and specific types of negative thoughts. And yes, they do the research and it's true. When people are depressed, they particularly tend to have negative thoughts about things that are happening at the moment, focusing more on the negative, ignoring the positive. Negative thoughts about the future, thinking that things will turn out badly and negative thoughts about themselves. I'm no good, I've screwed up, this is my fault, that kind of thing. So negative thoughts about oneself, things that happen and the future, he called that the cognitive triad that contributed to depression. And all this research evidence then showed, yes, people very commonly did have these kind of thoughts. We don't have to just ask them about their first six years of life. We don't just have to look at what happened to them two or three years ago. As they sit in the chair right there, talking about how they feel about a particular situation and what they think about it, identifying their thoughts about it, recognising these negative thoughts tend to come up and finding ways of countering those negative thoughts bring in more of a balance, that would lead people to feel better. And so Beck and others would do a lot of research of helping people to identify and then counter these negative thoughts, and lo and behold, their depression was improving. So sure, their depression might improve with certain behavioural techniques, like we call it behavioural activation, people doing a little bit more, increasing their activity, increasing their physical activity, partly to help feel more effective. It also could be engaging in activities that give a sense of achievement or pleasure. So pleasant events, that was part of cognitive behaviour therapy, these behavioural principles. But And 
adding on to the cognitive side, identifying the negative thoughts and helping counter them? Well, I think when you break it down like that, in, in terms of where things were and, and where, I suppose, Beck took them in, in a psychology sense, in terms of the field of psychology, his wisdom really absolutely comes through in that way. And, and I suppose it'd even just be worth, I suppose, unpicking a little bit more about that idea of negative thoughts, because it is such a central part of CBT. And I think, you know, Negative thoughts, it's, you know, it's a, it's a great term, but it can be a little bit ambiguous in some ways because, you know, it may manifest or thoughts may manifest negatively different for absolutely everyone. But he had a, I suppose, number of ways that he would describe those negative thoughts that are even a little bit more specific. And we might even go over a couple of them, Dad, because I think it is worth getting into. And one of those, uh, he had an experiment to, uh, which I think shows well, I suppose, the nature of these negative thoughts. And the experiment uh, looked at something called binocular rivalry, I think is what it was called. It's a, it's a fancy term, but basically what they would do is they would set people up with, with some sort of apparatus to look through where they were looking at two pictures. So look, look at one picture in one eye and one picture in the other eye. And one of these pictures was positive. I think it was a group of people smiling, sitting around a table, and on the table was a vase of flowers. And then on the other picture, it was like a negative picture. So it was a similar group of people sitting around a similar table. Instead of smiling, they weren't smiling at all, looking very you know, sad and down. And in the middle of the table was a coffin instead of a, a bunch of flowers. And what Beck found doing these experiments is that people who were depressed would essentially isolate the negative picture and just focus on the negative picture. And once they'd recovered, they would isolate the positive picture and focus on the positive picture. And so I think he called this particular you know, negative thought, I think this was called a, a mental filter. And so what he found was that people who are depressed, they literally have a perception of the world that is clouded towards seeing the negative versus the positive. When presented with two options side by side with each other, one's negative, one's positive, they would focus on the one that's negative until they recovered the exact same people were shown the two pictures again later on once they'd recovered and then they were able to focus on the positive one again. And so what this showed was that these people had such an entrenched perspective towards the negative that came with their depression. And I suppose what Beck was almost trying to say is almost kind of going, hey, it's, I think this is a little bit more chicken and egg than maybe Freud's making it out to be in terms of, you know, this isn't just a, you know, a symptom of, of things that have happened many, many years ago. There are situations where the same person will focus on different photos out of, you know, different eyes based on whether they're feeling positive or negative. But to me, it just shows, I suppose, the depth to which, you know, something like depression and, and you know, what we call negative thoughts, these kind of ter negative thoughts uh, that the Beck termed, it just shows the depth to which they can, I suppose, overcome us and can almost literally cloud or our entire perceptions. Yes, and if we think that in general, it might not be quite this precise, but looking to have about three positive thoughts to one negative thought to look at more of a balance, but certainly we need more positive thoughts to negative thoughts to have some kind of balance in our mood. Well, if people have, say, one positive thought to one negative thought, they're likely to be feeling depressed. In that situation, the person might be thinking, yes, but there's only one good thing that happens to one bad thing. That's the actual ratio I experience. Well, wait a minute. It might not be that's the ratio of good or bad things that happen. 
like you said with that binocular kind of experiment, it might be partly our interpretation or our filter whether we're selectively attending to the positive or the negative. And certainly that's one of the key things that comes across with seeing clients who are struggling with depression, very much tending to notice and pick up on the negative things about themselves, things that happen in the future, and tending to gloss over the positive things about themselves and things that happen. So this is one of the main things that can make a difference when people recognise that there might be that mental filter happening and looking to counter it as well as by identifying these other kind of examples of disruptive thinking or thinking errors that we'll talk about. Yeah, and and I suppose this leads us in pretty well to those thinking errors, Dad, because that mental filter or that selective attention, that, I suppose, focusing on the negative instead of the positive, that's that's one of these thinking errors that Beck describes. So we might even go through a couple more, and and I might even uh, mention some of them, and Dad, you might even have a little bit of an example for us for how they work. So... All or nothing thinking. Now, I reckon this is something that I, you know, may have engaged in with you a little bit as a kid, you know, in terms of, you know, you see things pretty black and white, but how does all or nothing thinking come into it? Yeah, so one example that, say, Beck would give is the idea is if I'm not a total success, I'm a failure, that all or nothing. But it can come up in different ways by, for example, thinking, oh, that really screwed up or something like that. We just look at a global negative interpretation rather than realising, well, quite a number of things went half well, even if maybe some things didn't go the way you want. But, yeah, that black and white all or nothing thinking. And oh, this in some ways relates to the next one in some ways, but, but catastrophizing, which we spoke a little bit about with the unhelpful thinking styles. Uh, I can't actually remember which episode we spoke in the last couple anyway, but, uh, but catastrophizing. Dad, do you want to just remind us again, what's catastrophizing? So catastrophizing can be the idea of, oh, this is awful. This is terrible. I can't stand it. Uh, this is all going to you know, turn out dreadfully wrong and um, this is so difficult, this situation, that no good's going to come out of it kind of thing. So again, that can overlap a bit with all or nothing thinking, but the notion of this is catastrophic, this is just terrible, and that's maybe a bit exaggerated. And I suppose, Dad, just to almost butt in here, one thing that I kind of almost find with that sometimes is, look, I'll put my hand up and, and you know, I have at times in my life, being prone to catastrophizing in certain situations. And, and I love that term self-fulfilling prophecy because there's so many situations where you can kind of go, hold on, actually, is this just a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that I'm getting myself into here? And I think looking at things through those terms really helps a bit anyway. Yes, and it just also shows if we start off with unrealistic expectations on ourselves or get a bit black and white about that or a bit perfectionistic, then maybe if things don't go the way we want, we can tend to get caught up in all or nothing thinking or catastrophizing. So yes, it helps to start off with maybe having more realistic expectations on ourselves as well. And the next one, Dad, I imagine can present in a whole range of ways because you know, labelling is the, is the next one. But I suppose the specific label that people can place on themselves can vary from, you know, not being good enough in general to, you know, everything right through to not being good enough at something very specific. Yes, and so one example could be, and we pick it up from the tone of the word, don't we? Oh, oh gee, I'm an idiot. Or, gosh, I'm a fool. Or, what a loser. You know, talking in relation to yourself. It's these global general labels and if you think of like attaching that to your identity at the time how are we possibly going to feel any level of confidence or look into the future with some encouragement it just really 
shuts you down, those kind of negative terms if we apply it to ourselves. And the next one, Dad, is mind reading. Do you want to just give us a bit of a sense of how mind reading relates? Because like, oh, I've never heard of anyone who's ever, who's ever mind read before. Well, this would maybe come up, for example, with social anxiety as well. Oh, my friend didn't cross the road and talk to me because they're pissed off with something I did last week. When it might be that they're rushing to you know, catch a train or get to a lecture or do something else. They might have some activity that they've got to engage in at the time. Or maybe they're caught up with something in their own mind that they didn't want to stop and have a conversation. But it can be along the lines of, oh, that person doesn't like me because of the way they looked at me sideways. Or that person thinks I'm uninteresting because they're spending time talking to this other person rather than me. Yeah, having these interpretations about what other people think about us or another situation. So you say, I almost look at that one in terms of thinking you can read minds in some ways. But uh, Dad, if you move on to the next one, overgeneralisation. How can overgeneralisation get us into a bit of trouble? Well, it could be along the lines, say, in a work situation that, oh, I'm not cut out to do this because I lack the skills. And it might be a couple of skills that you haven't developed so much, or it might be a mistake that you made in one area, but there might be 80% of the things that you've done well, a couple of slip-ups, another area you might need help with, but then the person might think, oh, no, that slip-up I showed or that kind of difficulty I had in that area, that means I'm just not cut out for this job. And personalisation, Dad. What's personalisation in a, a thinking error sense? It basically means that we're bringing something back to our problem or our fault. So it might be that there was a difficult situation that came up with a group of friends and you think, oh, that's because of me. It's because of my role in that situation. Or maybe someone treated you in a way that you didn't like so much and, oh, well, look, that's my fault. I've probably kind of offended them in the past in some way. So it's bringing it back to the onus of kind of like um, blame or responsibility on oneself, but often unrealistically, and often that can involve a bit of mind reading as well. Which also, interestingly, to look at there in terms of we've spoken about, I suppose, pessimism as one thing on the podcast before, and it seems to me that personalization is a little bit inherent in pessimism in terms of you think you know things can go wrong well it's it's, it's me that's the the thing that's gone wrong there yes that's actually a big point if people want to learn to be less pessimistic a little bit more optimistic it's recognizing that if something goes poorly notice the other factors beyond your control that contributed to that rather than just focus on the ones that you feel responsible for whereas if something goes well then allow for a, well, a bit of personalisation in that situation as in attributing some of the positive things to yourself. Don't just attribute them to other things that happen. But yeah, it's getting a balance with that, but recognising our positive kind of contribution to situations, not getting overly caught up in or exaggerating our negative role in situations. And the final one that we'll talk about today, and I will just mention as well, a lot of these came from a handout from the Beck Institute. So uh, the institute started by, by Tim Beck himself, whose daughter Judith now runs that. And I'll put that up on the podcast page for today at sykespeels.com.au. And um, we'll put up a whole range of resources for today. But Dad, for the last one, should and must statements. We've spoken a little bit about this in previous episodes, but do you want to just touch on why should and must statements can get us into trouble? Yes, well, these are statements that involve a judgmental black and white kind of thinking. And I would have said in earlier episodes that I think that the word should 
In English, the word should causes more distress than any other word in the English language. I should have done this and I didn't. I didn't do that and I should have. If we think I should have done this and I didn't, we're going to tend to feel guilty. If we think of someone else, you should have done this or you shouldn't have done that, we're going to tend to feel angry. It's a little bit like playing God. It's saying the world should turn out a certain way. It's not allowing for all the uncertainties or complexities in life. So it's got this demanding kind of quality to it that we can apply to ourselves and potentially others. And it gets particularly difficult if someone has unrealistic expectations, like I shouldn't make mistakes. I shouldn't slip up. I should do this well. I should get this right first time. You know, I should always do things in the most efficient way. The more that we have these restrictive kind of expectations of ourselves, that tends to add to very regular stress. So must, I must do this a certain way or I must do that a certain way. Again, it can be a bit perfectionistic. The way that Albert Ellis referred to that was masturbation. He said there's way too much he said there's way too much masturbation going on here. I must this, you must that kind of thing. And I think he made the point particularly effectively using that term. But I'll also add, Rowan, you referred to that handout coping with depression that will include a link on the podcast episode page. Now that is very similar to the handout that I would have been using since nineteen eighty. Now talk about tried and true, we don't maybe spend quite as much time going through this kind of analysis of the different types of thinking errors, but it's really helpful for people to be aware of the range of different ways that we can have distorted thoughts that can contribute to depression or anxiety if we think of a situation as awful or terrible or this is going to be the worst thing if this happens, catastrophizing, that can certainly lead to anxiety. But that was a handout I used to give to virtually every client that I saw for depression or when people had significant anxiety difficulties. And it really helped people be aware of their automatic thoughts, be more sensitized to it and have a little bit of a handle on how they could contribute to that negative kind of thinking. So, yep, it's not just a situation that we're in, but it's these kind of thoughts that we might have about it. And when we realize that these thoughts are very common, most people suffering from depression will have quite a pattern of these kind of thoughts. Most people suffering from anxiety disorders will have many of these different types of thoughts. Actually, all of us are going to have quite a range of these kind of thoughts. But if we get caught up in them, too frequent, too many, or we don't know how to defuse them, that's when they really lead to difficulties. And I suppose it's that thing of, you know, it's what I remember the first time I heard it in terms of, you know, mental illness is a social construct. It's sort of a kind of bizarre way of saying it, but all it is is a collection of symptoms. And essentially, these are those symptoms in some ways. And I suppose the other thing that really stands out to me about this list, Dad, is, is just how connected some of them are. For example, the idea of labelling. If you label yourself in a certain way, well, it's, it's likely that you will catastrophize in certain situations. It's likely that you will discount the positive in other situations. It's likely that you will infer things from people who didn't necessarily mean that. And it's like you're reading their mind in a certain different way. But it's so interesting to have all these, I suppose, laid out like this. And as I said, we'll, we'll put it all up on the, the podcast page for today. But it, it just suggests the, I suppose, connectivity between some of this sort of stuff. It's not as if, you know, there's, you know, Johnny over here and he's a catastrophizer and Jimmy over there and, and he discounts the positive in things. So, so there's a connection between these things. 
Yes, and I think that's a really important point. Picking up more generally on the impact of negative thoughts and the general flavour of them. So we don't want it to be too academic an exercise, if you like, trying to just differentiate one from the other too exactly because there is a lot of overlap. And this is the core kind of thing, that people really get a sense of the connection between our thoughts, our feelings and our behaviour. Now, if I'm feeling really sad and despondent, it's virtually guaranteed that I'm going to have negative thoughts, such as, this isn't turning out well, it's my fault, it isn't going to go so well in future, those kind of helpless thoughts that will help predict our actions. Our actions are likely to be more withdrawn, less active, less engaged in what we're doing, maybe avoiding situations in a certain way. So our thoughts, feelings and behaviour go together. Again, we might have a lowered mood, the expression on our face might be somewhat downcast and these things then will impact on people around us as well as ourselves. So let's notice how thoughts, feelings and behaviour go together. Now, in contrast to depression where the emphasis is on these negative thoughts about oneself, things that happen in the future, just say with anxiety... It's about the perception of threat. So our thoughts and feelings, behaviour will go together. So our feeling might be feeling anxious, nervous, fearful. Well, our thoughts will tend to be about a perception of danger. This is terrible. I can't stand it. That's going to go badly. There'll be this bad consequence from it. And then one's behaviour will tend to be, well, first of all, agitated in one's body. But again, it might be avoiding a situation, maybe being inefficient in what we're doing, maybe doing something over and over again without sort of thinking straight about problem solving, how we want to approach it. We might talk in an agitated way towards others. We might be clearly worrying about something, even if that doesn't seem to be helping too much. We're Also, if we're angry, then our thoughts, our feelings and behaviour go together. So our feelings will be feeling angry, maybe frustrated, tense. Our thoughts might be, they shouldn't have done that, this shouldn't have happened. There might be other thoughts other than expectations about, say, a win-lose approach to situations. There's going to be a winner and a loser. I don't want to be the loser. It could be thoughts about the need for revenge. They've done this wrong to me. I should get them back. How dare they do that? I can't let them get away with that, that kind of thing. So What helps is if people pick up the flavour of the kind of thoughts that go with depression, like the ones we mentioned earlier, but also with anxiety, also with anger, even some of the thoughts that people can have if they're feeling helpless with pain, like, I can't stand it, as opposed to, this is really uncomfortable, but I've got ways of managing with this. I can focus on something else for a little while. This is difficult, but I have ways of getting by. It makes a big difference, the flavour of our thoughts. And so I might emphasise that with the emphasis in CBT on homework exercises, it still has that behaviour therapy component to it where people keep on, if you like, acting in ways to establish different habits. One of the things that would help with a homework exercise is if we note down situations when we've felt distressed, when we have felt especially sad, frustrated, angry, anxious, And we look to identify the negative thoughts that we had at the time we were feeling that way. So it's really good to get in the habit 
when you suddenly feel quite distressed or you notice that you're feeling quite bad, your mood's low, catch yourself and you think, what's going through my mind right now? What's going through my mind? And as a therapist, we do that. We see a person's facial expression change. They look more anxious. They look more distressed. What's going through your mind right now? And that helps pick up the thought that goes with the anxiety, that goes with the sadness, that goes with the frustration, that then will influence our behavior of angrily yelling at someone, of withdrawing from a situation, feeling nervous, of helplessly hanging our head in shame, whatever. So again, our thoughts, feelings and behavior will go together. So much of CBT exercises early on can include people keeping a diary. Sometimes we might use a a sheet or an exercise called a dysfunctional thought schedule. Or it could even be an automatic thoughts kind of questionnaire where we sample, we look at the different kind of thoughts that we might have and identify the ones that we might more commonly have. But particularly using something like a diary, I mentioned a dysfunctional thought schedule, that's when you identify what was the situation I was in, not just how I feel about it, but what, how would a camera see it? So-and-so said such-and-such to me. Try and get the actual words that they said. Or rather than saying, I mucked up the job, it could be... Look, I completed this task, but I didn't get the other task finished in time and the customer said to me that they were upset. I hadn't finished it. We try and record what a camera would see or what we can identify objectively and then we look at our interpretation of that. Oh, I screwed up. That's my fault. I'm going to lose all my customers. I'm going to go broke, this kind of thing. And then what happens when the person identifies their feeling like feeling frustrated or sad or angry. We often get the person to rate their level of sadness, for example, or the level of anxiety, note the situation itself, then identify what was going through my mind in that situation. What were my beliefs in that situation? Okay, I mucked up. This was my fault. I couldn't fix it up afterwards. But then people practice seeing if there's another way of thinking about that situation. If someone has a thought that's overgeneralized, like I always muck that up, then there's a key question to ask oneself. What's the evidence for that? What's the evidence that I always muck that up or it's my fault or they don't like me or something like that? Okay, what's the evidence that I always muck that up? Did I muck it up yesterday? Was there a time last week where I did that task where it turned out well? Have I had customers say that they're happy with a job I did with them? So you look for the alternative evidence. So what's the evidence for that negative thought? What's another way of thinking about that situation? And so a whole lot of CBT and the cognitive therapy aspect of it was people stepping back, stepping back from a situation, stepping back from our feelings. What actually did transpire? What actually happened in that situation as a camera would see it? How was I feeling? Okay, what was going through my mind? And the more people pick up these kinds of automatic thoughts that will be in that pamphlet, Coping with Depression, these examples of automatic thoughts, when people pick up those thoughts and have practice countering them, no, it's not always like this, or, hey, wait a minute, that might have gone poorly, but that went well, or what's the evidence it was my fault? Maybe that person was just having an off day then. We have this practice of countering those thoughts And then what happens is people go back to then think, now how sad do you feel or now how anxious do you feel? I think, okay, now 
my sadness, thinking I muck this up all the time, well, it's gone from a 7 out of 10 to maybe a 4 out of 10. I've remembered I did do quite a few things well last week or I'm usually quite skilled at this. What happens is people get more balance in their thoughts and they can see how their distress levels come down, stepping back from one's thoughts, stepping back from the negative interpretations, looking to have a different alternative interpretation You mightn't be completely convinced of it, but it's a different alternative, a little bit more balanced thinking, and people notice how their feelings change, improve somewhat, a little less distressed, a little less intensely anxious, uncomfortable, whatever it might be. And so people get more of a sense of, I can influence my thinking, I can influence what goes through my mind about a situation, I can influence my feelings that way, I can influence my behaviour that way, and then people pick up as you were suggesting, on the more characteristic thoughts they might have of overgeneralizing or calling themselves names, that labeling kind of thing. And gradually, especially with depression or more extreme anxiety, people pick up on these patterns and gradually shift their thinking in a more balanced direction so the distress is less intense. And that gives people what we call a sense of self-efficacy, a bit more confidence. Hey, I can make a difference in this situation. It's not just what's happening to me. It's how I think about it and I can do something about that. Well, it's fascinating to hear you, I suppose, break down the development of CBT is really how I take that. And and it's so interesting to hear it, I suppose, demystified in some ways. And and there's a couple of things that come to mind for me there anyway. And, and one of them is it really stands out to me, I suppose, why they call it CBT now in terms of, you know, maybe back in Freud's day, maybe, maybe it was more like subcognitive therapy. It wasn't even necessarily our thoughts that Freud was focusing on and then almost became BT it was almost like behavior therapy and then like initially it seems that that Beck introduced CT which helped almost yeah later on kind of develop into CBT but the other question that I have from that is one that I believe is it was a bit of a question in psychology at some time because what I wonder then is as a psychologist what's more important in terms of the thoughts or the behaviors or the feelings in terms of like they're all connected but is there for example one that is best to go to first is there one that has I suppose the most bang for your buck in terms of if you if you make small changes in that area then it's most likely to influence the rest of them yeah how do you approach whether or not to, I suppose, go the C or the B, because although they're linked, they might also, I suppose, yeah, come from different angles. Yes, these are key things about CBT. And one thing to keep in mind is when people sometimes would criticise CBT as ignoring emotions, well, wait a minute, CBT is all out to assist our emotional functioning, to help us feel better. That's what CBT is about. So when we're talking about cognitive therapy or cognitive behavior therapy it's often directed to helping people manage with anxiety a feeling or depression a feeling or anger a feeling or guilt a feeling so cbt is looking at efficient ways practical ways of influencing our emotions but you're picking up there on something which is a major debate in the field for quite a period of time, certainly through the 70s and 80s, because there was behaviour therapy and the people who were the proponents of that, the leaders in that said, this is objective, it's all scientific, we're not interpreting what's going on in people's heads, it's too fluffy. 
Then you get the cognitive people coming along saying, no, it's our interpretations that are key. And there was a real debate going on. What's more important, cognitive or behavioural? That was ultimately resolved largely by a suggestion of Albert Bandura, who said that people are arguing about, you know, do we change behaviour, do we change thinking, what's the most efficient? And basically, he summed it up by saying, when it boils down to it, the key is our worldview, our interpretation of events. Yes, it's our cognitions that are most important. However, the most effective way, an efficient way of changing our cognitions is personal experience, therefore behaviour. So we have to consider our actions and habits and look to develop more positive kind of habits, but including in our habits of thinking, including in trying to create the experiences for ourselves where we're less likely to think, this is awful, this is terrible, I'm overwhelmed, it's all my fault. So part of cognitive behaviour therapy, yes, it's picking up the kind of negative thoughts that we might have and countering them, but it's looking to help create the kind of experiences that give us more confidence in managing a situation. And so that means applying, if you like, more balanced thoughts, what we might call coping thoughts. This is a difficult situation, but I can manage with it. There are things that I can do as opposed to this overwhelms me. And then the more we're able to face certain situations like face a phobia or if we're feeling depressed and helpless, but we get ourselves in a position where we can have a go at a task rather than avoiding it and then have the experience of managing with it okay. And then we tell ourselves, yes, that was good enough. I've managed that okay. We connect with people somewhat rather than avoiding them. So we're less likely to think, oh, I'm a loser. No one likes me. We're actually working on the behavioral as well as the cognitive, if you like. But we're very much tuning into what's the person's worldview. What's my take on this? Because that's central. But we look at how our behavior, our habits can reinforce and strengthen those more adaptive, positive thoughts. I heard a quote once, which I think fits in really well here. And it's from a guy, his name's Jim Quick. Who he might, I reckon I've even brought him up on the podcast before, Dad, because fascinating guy. Basically, he was diagnosed with a learning disability when he was growing up. And as he was going through school, struggled through school and all this sort of stuff, essentially reverse engineered intelligence to the point where he, he kind of broke everything down to the point where he was kind of told that he had a broken brain. And he's gone on to be just one of the most influential academics of, well, certainly in my life the last couple of years, he's got some brilliant books out and all this sort of stuff. But he has this quote and it says, your brain is like a supercomputer and your self-talk is the program it will run. Oh, I love that quote. That just really sums up CBT in a punchy way. Absolutely. And so Jim Quick is his name, Dad. And, and I suppose that's one of the things that in many ways positive psychology is picked up on a little bit too. I think in positive psychology we have, for example, like a gratitude journal exercise. Or you might have a, a three blessings exercise. And what it seems to me that positive psychology is picking up on is that we can maybe even do a little bit more than was, say, accepted, say, 20 or 30 years ago to shift things a little bit further away from the, I suppose, the ratio even of negative feeling. If you're able to, I suppose, introduce some times where it's just purely positive feeling, it's almost like you can reverse engineer this stuff a little bit in some ways. Yes, and it's interesting that you mentioned positive psychology because that gets at the theme of how CBT has evolved further. And there are a number of therapies that might be called third wave therapies. First, we had behaviour therapies you mentioned. Then 
cognitive therapy and CBT comes along. Now, what third wave therapies look to do is to balance out the areas of CBT that were seen as maybe a little bit lacking. For example, CBT in focusing so much on thoughts, to some extent behaviours, sometimes people would say there was not enough emphasis on emotions in therapy or not working with emotions more directly, like asking people how they were feeling, where in their body they felt it, how old they were when they first felt that kind of feeling, what was happening at the time, which, by the way, I saw Beck for the first time in 1989 at a conference, and he was doing exactly those things. He was focusing on a feeling. He was asking the person to remember when they first felt that, uh, you know, where in their body they might have had certain kind of reactions. Now, because he wrote about thoughts a lot, people wouldn't realise he also used these other multimodal ways of working that he didn't emphasise as much. But it's true that CBT, early on didn't emphasise emotion so much in certainly its writings and techniques. So then there was, say, emotion-focused therapy that came along. Or people might say that CBT didn't emphasise imagery enough because it was talking about thoughts. But the cognitive behaviour therapy, the cognitive part also relates to images as cognitions, not just thoughts, but sometimes a bit of that would be lost in translation. So you'd get other therapies come up like imagery rescripting therapy, for example. Then it would be fair enough to say that CBT didn't emphasise developmental experiences so much, and so you would get maybe cognitive analytic psychotherapy that would develop a little bit more of that. You mentioned positive psychology. Yes, people could say CBT was focusing too much on the negative, could have spent more time bolstering the positive, and so Martin Seligman emphasised that side of things more. Interestingly, one time I asked Martin Seligman about how he would consider the differences between him and or his work and Beck's work. And he didn't say, positive psychology, my work is more positive, Beck is more negative. He used a different subtle contrast. He said, we work very similarly. He said, actually, I have lunch every month with Beck. We did for, I think, decades, many, many years. But he said, Beck's more cognitive, I'm more behavioural. And I think that just shows some of the subtleties in these approaches and how linked they are. They're not as different as people might make out. But there are other, what we would call third-wave CBT therapies as well, that thought there's that thought there was too much emphasis on the analytical stuff we're talking about, like focusing on negative thoughts and looking at black and white thinking and overgeneralizing those. And they were saying, look, you don't really need to emphasize these mental gymnastics on the thoughts so much. Just identify them and take a distance from them. For example, you'd get metacognitive therapy, which would notice, I'm having the thought that. I'm no good or I've screwed up or something along those lines. And rather than countering it or analysing it or seeing if it's overgeneralising or whatever, it'd just be identifying the fact that that's a negative thought and then, in a sense, do nothing. Don't act on it. Let the thought pass. And so there'd also be acceptance and commitment therapy, which would also emphasise the idea of recognise a thought and then take a distance from it, like decentering from it. So by taking a distance from it, so you're not so much engaging with that thought being in your head, standing back from it, it could have less impact. And I'd say that's been the trend of the last 10 or 15 years. Not so much doing the analysing of what kind of thinking error 
am I making? Maybe too much emphasis on thinking errors. More, okay, notice the thought, take a distance from it. And any way that the person might do that is likely to lessen their distress around a negative thought. So I think that's got a real point to it, that notion of taking a distance from thoughts and considering imagery and considering the positive, like positive psychology, noticing positive thoughts, gratitude, encouraging that, encouraging self-compassion, those kinds of things. But when it boils down to it, each of these different kinds of therapies owes its foundation to the work of Beck and Ellis working alongside in a parallel therapy approach. All of these approaches really come back to identifying the impact of our worldview, our thinking, our perspective on our reactions and paying attention to our thoughts can be part of that process. Well, Dad, I must admit, I do find it fascinating to hear about all those different therapy types, but as someone who's not necessarily trained in psychology, it does get a little bit Judean people's front at times. <laughs> but it is, well, the thing that does stand out to me in terms of, uh, in terms of all that is that all these different therapies, as you say, they're, they're based on the work of Beck and Alice. And, and so, you know, in many ways, CBT, it seems to me, is it's not even a specific therapy as much as it's more of a philosophy towards, as you were saying, towards recognising the power of our thoughts, recognising the power that we have over our thoughts as well. And I suppose, yeah, what we can do outside of just that being destined to, you know, fulfil the life print that our six-year-old self set out for us. Yes, I think that's a key thing. At a fundamental level, CBT is about an approach. It's about a philosophy. And the core elements of it are that our worldview, how we see things makes a real difference to how we feel and how we act. There are ways of getting some kind of access or understanding something of our worldview from picking up our thoughts, including those that tend to pass through our mind somewhat automatically, but we can become a little bit more sensitised to some of the more problematic thoughts and that could be helpful. CBT is based on a scientist-practitioner approach. So it's an approach about making minimal inference to explain difficulties. Don't assume this will be something that happened when you were four years old, when no one can demonstrate that or there's no real evidence for it. Yes, early childhood events might have a real impact on things, but by the same token for your therapy models, mainly go with principles that are more demonstrated, more tried and true. Don't be over-speculative in explaining difficulties if we haven't got much evidence to back it up. And so that's where also we look at things like habits. We look at the science of behaviour therapy and how things like exposure to feared situations can help, how systematic desensitisation and we could even say relaxation, mindfulness approaches based on ancient traditions but also updated through CBT, they can help. And also when it comes to a crunch, look at our personal experience and anything that we can do 
to help ourselves have experiences that are enhancing, uplifting, help us feel effective. That includes drawing on social support. It includes looking at our connections and positive connections with other people. CBT tended to underemphasize relationships. Now with the work of the Gottmans in positive psychology and other areas, that's developed much further. But basically, yes, it's a philosophy that one of the best ways we can help ourselves feel well and function well is to have adaptive ways of looking at the world. And that includes looking at our behavior, personal experience, and sometimes there are direct ways we can nudge our thinking, our behavior, our reactions in helpful directions. Well, Dad, I suppose just to finish up and... In many ways, I think this is a way that we can nudge our behaviour in a certain direction and it comes from our our good mate Epictetus as well and it has been fascinating to look at some of, I suppose, the connection this week between some of the, the ancient philosophy and how it has developed these days but Epictetus said, so make a practice at once of saying to every strong impression, an impression is all you are, not the source of the impression, then test it and assess it with your criteria. But one primarily ask, is this something that is or is not in my control? And I think that's, he, he was really onto something, you know, 2,000 years ago. And, and through Beck and Alice and, and many others, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating that we've been able to come, to come to this place now and really be able to, it seems to me, harness these ideas for, for the benefit of everyone. What a fascinating quote. And it reminds me of the expression, there's nothing new under the sun. There's so much wisdom isn't there in the past and part of it's about packaging it in certain ways, making it accessible to people. But this shows that some of the most helpful philosophy has been around for a very long time. CBT is a very practical and efficient way of helping convey that kind of philosophy and approach. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. We mentioned earlier on that we'll put up all the resources for today at psychspiels.com.au. We've got all the episode pages there. We can get all the episodes and all the resources for previous episodes. Uh, Give us a subscribe or a follow on Spotify or or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks so much, Dad. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Vale, Aaron Beck as well is, is the last thing I'll say. Yes, Rowan, wonderful to have this time to acknowledge the wonderful influence of Aaron Beck.